Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bendian. And uh, today is an interview that I, has kind of been uh, long in the coming. And I'm just so pleased that we could finally get this together to do this, because as you know, this is one of the busiest, hardest working men in show business. And uh, just incredible drummer, as you all know, uh, musical rhythmic conceptualist, and uh, someone that I am very happy to call my friend. And we've had many very intense and deep conversations on the phone and in person. I did uh, Vinny's Yale Oral History interview, which was something like six hours long. And you can find that at yale.edu if you ever want to hear or, or listen to Vinny talk about his entire life up to that point. I think it was 2000, it was about 10 years ago, Vinny. 2013. And uh, well, I'm just so happy to to, uh, to welcome my friend Vinny Kaliuta to the program. Thank you for being here, Vin. Thanks for having me, Greg. I can't thank you enough. This has really been a long time coming. I mean, really. Okay. <laughs> enough of that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, Greg. nice to see you again thanks for having me on thanks for doing it um you know there's so many areas we could go into but i but one thing that has just come to mind recently mm -hmm. that i i just wanted to to get your take on is um well maybe before that i should say folks Vinny and i met mm -hmm. through one of the greatest musicians that has walked the planet and played the bass and written music and collaborated and is on thousands of recordings. Doug Lunn and yes, Vinny and Doug were tight from the beginning when Vinny came out to LA mm -hmm. and first started working with Frank. Mm -hmm. And until the day he passed, mm -hmm. you guys were like brothers and Doug, and I were friends playing in Mahavishnu Project and playing in different things. And he said, mm -hmm. you really need to meet my friend Vinny. I said, make that happen. I will be there. And, <laughs> well, and we glad that that happened. Yeah, yeah. And, and it had to happen. And then when it did, it was it was quite, quite beautiful. So Amen. Uh, just to say that, like, hey, hey, Doug Lon, we're always thinking about you. We sure are. Ab absolutely. Amen to that. And um, actually, um, I think it's January the 30th, if I'm, my memory serves me correctly, it will be his birthday, his heavenly birthday. So yeah, 70th birthday. Yeah, it would have been his 70th. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and you know, the, the Doug's project, Doug Lund project, um, I'm oh. not sure where it can be bought. But Find it online, Doug Lund yeah. project. Vinny on all the cuts and Doug's compositions. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's it's not even because I'm on it, and and I say that about other things that I've that I've done that you know I probably consider to be great record. Like for example, Alan Holsworth's Secrets to me is like a quintessential record of that idiom, but I don't say it because I'm on it, you know. And some people would disagree and say, well, you're a part of it and you shaped the, what it's become, but it's, it's, you know, to me, it's, it's okay. Okay. I'll take that. But 
but it's the composition it's it's the vision of him it's it's what that thing is and it's more than a snapshot in and that in in a period of a point in time just like Doug's project is and it's um Doug was such a visionary he um as you know you you know much better than I do probably Greg you know um and and I implore everybody to give give his music a listen so amen to that yes and also uh Keneally Bendy and Lun you can find it on YouTube did uh some of Doug's tunes when we played our our tours back in 2014 uh, some of Mike, some of mine, but yeah, you get to hear Doug songs played live that yes. were on originally. I had to follow mm -hmm. some of some of what Vinny put on the, the originals oh. and figure out how to do that. No, you do your own thing, Greg. <laughs> and I and I I did Vinny as much as possible, but certainly your your take on that big five, small five, uh oh. strange blues thing um is just incredible. So Thank you. Just wanted to say, yeah, man, everybody check out Doug Lund Project. You can find it on CD. I'm sure you can find it uh, at any place that has jazz rock stuff. Um, it is really a masterpiece. And and it's kind of uh, gives you everything you need to know about Doug. You know, I'm, I know we had mentioned talking about the post-Tony world, Tony Williams. And I wanted to maybe even go a little deeper because I, you know, I'm an historian. I like to know the details. I love the story. I'm really thinking, okay, I want to talk to Vinny about Tony, but what happens before Tony to get to Tony, to make Tony the drummer that he is, the musician that he is, because I don't even think of him as a drummer, I actually really have a very balanced view of Tony as a conceptualist. I mean, let's face it, he may have started jazz rock, if you want to argue about it. But I, I would probably agree with that. Yeah. So you have a young guy, and he must have been what, 20? And being yeah, that. right. And he's coming out of a, a traditional acoustic unit, which is now being confronted with Hendrix and other rock music that's happening in the sixties and he's taking it in, he's synthesizing it. Right. But there's this attitude, Vinny, and I find this so, so, so important to acknowledge. There's this tradition in drummers. If we go back to Roy, we go back to Max. If we go back to baby Dodds, they're innovating. Talk You're about that. Right. Well, I, I could talk about that in the context of, of your original statement slash question about Tony and post Tony and what what it was that made him who he was that changed drumming that that caused him to be, you know, this this force that you know ripped the the fabric of 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 the drumming world, you know, and, and, and really it kind of, to me, that, that, that kind of thing is sort of like, you know, we're, we're greater than the sum total of our parts, but what is it that makes someone like Tony take the sum total of his parts and completely change the world 
or a John Coltrane or a Charlie Parker or a Miles Davis or Louis Armstrong, you know, all those people. And so, you know, I, I, the first thing that came to my mind was how Tony had his tune called Big Sid uh, that he recorded. So, and really, I think that, he, you know, I, now that you're mentioning this, I think that he was paying homage to Sid Catlett because Sid, you know, if you go back and listen to Sid and, and see rare footage of him, you know, I think he was ahead of his time. So I think Tony recognized that. And so in assimilating people like Sid Catlett and everyone else that came before him, he recognized their vision and their sort of, you know, that, that what it was about them that they did and, and were that, <clears throat> pardon me, caused me to cause them to be uh, ahead of their time. So I think that, you know, he saw that because he had a similar vision. And I'm not saying that he had a similar vision in, in the sense of, you know, him thinking to himself, I'm going to change the world. It's just that, you know, he recognized it like recognizes like, you see what I mean? So, yeah. um, but, but, you know, just extrapolating on that thought, let's just look at Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, um, Hendrix, and Jimmy Page, right? Even if we leave Hendrix out of the equation, let's just take those three who grew up in a, you know, the same kind of area at the same time. Hmm. And now you're looking at people, three people who developed three distinct voices. McLaughlin's up in that area too, though. Yes, but let's just, let's just for the sake of this point. Okay. Leave it to those three. And they were close. They were close, those guys. They knew each other, you know. Jimmy Page and Jeff went to school together and, you know. Yardbirds. So, <clears throat> right. But, but the thing is, is that you have those three musicians with three dis who developed three distinct voices, not only on the guitar, but in how they, that they used their voice in situations, i.e. Led Zeppelin, that was a, com a completely different beast as well. So, uh, but, but the point is, is that if you look at where, what they were influenced by, what, what did they have in order to pull those three rabbits out of those hats? They had what? I don't know. Buddy Guy, Les Paul, yes. Howard Wolf. Yes. Keep, keep it coming. So you see what I mean? It's like, how did that happen? So, you know, these guys really were visionaries. And I don't know if they even, I mean, how, how much they did it consciously. You know, the late, great Jeff, I never really spoke to him about this. And, you know, regretfully now, in a sense. Um, but but, but that's, that's another case in point. You know, whereas Tony, I can almost pinpoint it, but, but he did, uh, even though I can, I can pinpoint it a little better, uh, you know, he still changed the world. Um, you know, I think, I think that he influenced Miles in terms of electric music. Because here's a young guy who's like, you know, he's a teenager and he, mm -hmm. he likes Beatles and he likes, you know what I mean? He likes rock music. And yeah, so, he yeah, he's not going to isolate himself from anything. 
And so he's going to assimilate that. And, you know, when you're young like that and um, you, you, you have, you, you really bursting into your own autonomy and your own agency and those things that you like, you almost want to be a part of and, and you want mm-hmm. that, those things to come out in you strongly as well. So, you know, it could have been something that was waiting to happen, but it didn't happen until Tony. So he made it happen. So there, you know, but, but that's kind of like my, my take on it. And, and, and then in a post Tony world, you know, you have, you now have people who, I mean, have assimilated his ideas into drumming, but, but really, I think that, that, maybe a lot of it has gotten distilled because I think that, that I'm, I'm not sure how many people are, are looking at the depth of it enough to have had that sort of seep into our, you know, um, I don't know, group psyche, you know, to, to shape drumming at large to the point where the focus is on the depth of the content versus sensationalism. So, you know, yes, he did change the world. I just pray that what he really stood for has not been distilled, you know, and, and as long as I'm around, you know, to talk about him or reflect it in any way, it, it won't be forgotten as long as I can help it. It came up yesterday because, uh, we were talking about um, Tony in the context of you have to live your the music of your time and the music of Tony's time after he had been through the music of the time before him, he's living and embracing that moment. And he's so much so that he's able to get Miles to check out Ornette and to check out Hendrix and, and all this stuff. Uh, That's monumental in itself right there, but carry on. But that, but that the idea is that I ask you this, maybe it's a label game, maybe not, but is jazz a music of tradition or is it a music of innovation or is it both? My my knee jerk, my knee jerk reaction to that is both. I don't think that I think that that people who argue about being a traditionalist or an innovation, arguing about it just creates a schism. I don't think that the I think it's built the innovation is built on top of tradition without erasing it, and that tradition is important because we we build on top of everything that has preceded. So you can't throw it away. It's, it's, it's almost like sacrilege to throw that away, I think, because it's all valid. It, it all makes up the components of innovation at any point that that innovation occurs. Those things continually build upon each other, but they, they never erase. And, and, and neither, neither do the components of the previous traditions ever become nullified, ever. Mm-hmm in my opinion. So, um, but, but again, just, just to backpedal a little bit, 
you know, you, you made a, a, a very important thing that you said in passing the, the music of his time. And so, you know, I, I talk about this a lot. We talk about the zeitgeist and, you know, I can sit here and wax romantic and, and, you know, um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, um, nostalgic. Um, but, but to me, it's beyond nostalgia. It's not nostalgia and it's not, uh, you know, a, a lamentation of a time. It is actually a lamentation of the time uh, because, you know, in as much as there were, uh, there was a lot of chaos going on at that time when Tony changed everything, um, there was also still a sort of, you know, uh, a sort of a collective feeling of hope that had not been destroyed by a continual barrage of, of propaganda. And negativity. And, oh, and, and all of those things. And yeah. Whether or not it was delivered by events or yeah. a continual erosion of just sort of, you know, audiovisual propaganda or however it was delivered, there still was this idea, you know, people were writing protest songs. Yes. You know, that people were anti-establishment because the establishment was not promoting peace and people saw through a lot that was going on. And, but, but they still, individuality was still championed, especially in terms of the voices that we had in, in, in our musical expression. Okay. And, but, but on top of the individuality, there was this, that, we still had this, we didn't have a feeling of this dire kind of fatalistic, you know, this is it, you know, there's nothing we can do. We're just going to digress into apathy and just stare at our phones because we can need constant dopamine hits. It was this kind of, okay, let's just forge on and, you know, bring when, it when, all in. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that carried through. And, you know, that was a part of his time. And, you know, I lament that part of society that still had cohesion enough to to do that, to respect each other's individuality, yet come together and say we're, we're still standing strong, you know, versus fighting each other. You know what I mean? And even up to 9-11, which was probably the second gigantic blow that was suffered in order to kind of damage our psyches, we still came together. People came together and helped each other. We dug each other out of the rubble. You yeah. know what I mean? All that kind of stuff. So I had a tour. Yeah. A tour was planned to start the week after 9-11 for the Requiem for Jack Kirby Interzone mm -hmm. record. And we didn't know what to do because we thought, oh, you know, what could happen? Uh, we'll go out on the road now. Maybe this is an ongoing thing guys in the band were kind of disgruntled. I said, you know, I kind of think the best thing we can do right now is go on the road and do this music. <laughs> and the music can keep us in the proper zone without freaking the fuck out, even though we played two blocks or four blocks from Ground Zero at the Knitting Factory and the smell and the police cordon. And um, these are all etched into memory. But I just remember that I had that mantra that I had from high school, which is we still have music. My God, right. we still have music. We have music. Like I know 
The music is is actually t also telling people things. The music, the individuality. This is another big point I wanted to talk to you about. Hmm. The individuality that is de rigueur in jazz. The individuality of personality of doing it your way. Isn't that the mantra? Doing it your way? I mean, you did. Yeah, I think it is because that's the, that's the sort of the the sort of nexus of of, of the, that's the that's that's the epitome of of self-expression yeah let's just look at that word self-expression and if you're just cloning or you're just parroting then you know where's the self in the self-expression now you know a lot of people will argue this philosophically and to me getting into those kind of arguments is like chasing your tail a dog chasing its tail it's 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 moot it's futile saying well you know but you're the sum total of you know all of your influences and your thoughts aren't really yours and yeah, 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 and all this baloney yeah. that yeah. I, you know believe me i went through and i don't care if somebody says well you know i, I have a degree in philosophy how dare you act like you're some know-it-all i'm not a know-it-all we all have the same capacity if we're not, you know, mentally ill or handicapped mentally to be able to figure this stuff out, you know? So, so I don't, don't please come to me with these qualifications because right. you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, it, it's that to me is like, yeah. Okay. If you're going to be a neurosurgeon, okay you know, or a rocket scientist. I mean, how else do you vet that? But, but it, it's like, how do you then come to grips with a guy wailing on buckets in a street yeah. versus a guy who's spent, you know, 500 grand getting a degree, you know, and who really is not telling me anything like the guy playing the buckets is because he's telling me his life. He's telling me his life when he plays. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. So, I'm, it means please, I don't want to hear about that garbage, you know, about qualification. You have to put qualifications in particular contexts, but in the music realm, it's like, what do you got to say? What so, do you have to say? Yeah, that's it. Like when I moved to LA, you know, I didn't put cards up in every studio. I didn't, you know, do all of that sort of marketing. I just let my playing do the talking. And if you liked me, great. If you didn't, okay then get somebody else who's qualified. And, you know, we also talk about these things. I'm sorry, you know, if I'm going on a, a sort of a rant here, but I just want to get this out. Okay. You know, it's about like comp competition in music, you know? No. How about cooperation? Yeah, but the bebop guys used to like, yeah, come on up on the bandstand, show us what you got. That's how they vetted people to see if they were capable. Okay, Cherokee at 300 and F sharp go, you know? Like, you know what I'm saying? And so it wasn't like, you know, a cutting contest, but that was how they made sure that you were qualified mm -hmm. to be able to talk to you. You know what I mean? Once, I mean, so, okay, we speak the same language. We can have a conversation now. We could come up with things. That's what that is. Frame it that way instead, and you'll see it from a completely different viewpoint, which is eye-opening and valid, okay, so that this new language can also be developed. That's how they were vetted. 100%. It wasn't yeah. about just like, I'm going to beat you up. It's like, this is how I'm going to make sure that I can talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's it's really interesting too that um, guys who to this day, like John McLaughlin, get the younger guys to kick their asses. So this came up in, in terms of King Crimson and Robert Fripp always knowing who the right guys were, according to Trey Gunn, who I had on the program, and Miles knowing who the right guys are and knowing who the right guys are not. So this ability to, look, Frank did it. Frank heard you. Yeah. That ability, right? Yeah, but go back to, you know, McLaughlin and these younger guys to kick kick their asses. It's, I wouldn't even use that phrase. He's just looking for different input because as the younger generation assimilates all that came before them, they're going to spit it out differently. And so then by injecting that into, you know, let's ha now have a dialogue with someone who is older, then there's going to be a, a new synthesis. Mm. You see what I mean? That's what happens. It's not about, you know, the, the viewpoint of, yeah, I'm going to show that old guy, you know? No, it's about they're going to hire the young guys so that they can get that viewpoint mm. of all the things that came before them and they're going to spit it out their way. It, here's, an, here's, a, here's a kind of somewhat tangential analog of that. A friend of mine was telling me that uh, someone had gone into the Congo and heard these guys playing with these homemade instruments, and they were playing this kind of funk that was, you know, they had never heard before. So apparently it was asked of this band of musicians, so what are your influence? What's Tell me what's your biggest influence or who do you like to listen to? And the answer was James Brown. So talk about cross pollination and how things become synthesized and they go back and forth. Yeah. James Brown and Fela. Yeah. James Brown and Fela. Yeah. Fela. I mean, that's, there you go. Yeah. You can see it. You can hear it. Um, Absolutely. He, you know, I'm going to go a little micro and ask you, talk to me a little bit about Tony and the hi-hat. I heard uh, a story from someone that was very close to him that he started doing that and it took him a couple of weeks to get it to where he felt like he got it down. And I'm not sure why the reason was that he wanted to do it, but it, 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 I think it was born of some necessity in his head. Um, but, you know, the whole thing of playing the hi-hat on Athos was definitely his, his thing. And, 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 also, and also utilizing it as a voice to sort of fatten up things that he played with it in certain phrases. That's, that's, that's how I hear it, his use of the hi-hat as well, as a tool of orchestration to shape his voice and what his vocabulary made, was made of. So, you know, and by, by the same token, um, that, um, like, like, like the way Max used a hi-hat or, or Papa Joe, and they all had different ways of doing it. Al Foster, you know, with Miles, it was, Billy Joe. it was the rock thing. Well, yeah, him too. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much, that's my take on it, you know? 
Yeah, because it, it, it really seems like that was revolutionary for the kit, unless, you know, you can correct me, but the idea of including the hi-hat infills, including the hi-hat in doublings, including the hi-hat in messing around between uh, snare and hat, and all of these options, which I don't know, is it coming out of Roy? Um, I don't hear it, but it could, it could. Um, but I think that, that, that Tony sort of saw it and took it and ran with it and, and just incorporated it into the orchestration to create fatter sounds, explosive things, um, more, more unpredictable events that were a result of including that in, in orchestrating uh, in, in in the kid orchestration, you know, but I'm not, I'm not sure if it came out of Roy. I don't, I don't know. That's a great question. I, I'm not hearing it. Maybe you can enlighten me. Do, do you well, hear I, I think about like, for instance, this, the Dolphy, just look at the Dolphy uh, record out there. Roy, um, Ron Carter, uh, George Duvivier, uh, and, and Roy's, that's a pretty significant hi-hat Roy record for me. I okay. did have one on but, hand to tell you. Yes. You know what? I have to go back and listen to that. Yeah. I haven't listened to that record in probably 25 years. So yeah. I, I think it's time for me to, to revisit that. And quite frankly, now that you've brought it up, I will confess that I've had this urge to go back and listen to things from that era. Yeah. Um, that, that, will always be timeless and relevant, you know, mm -hmm. and you, you, you mentioned Ornette and I was telling, uh, oh, I have to erase that. I was talking with someone recently and, you know, brought up this idea that was kind of a question. I was like, well, you know what, do you think, because somehow for me, I'm getting this feeling that as I was listening to Ornette and then I went and listened to Keith and then I was listening to like what I was calling the Boston sound at that time, even when I was there, that probably reached its peak in a sense of its development, its developmental peak a few years before I even got there on the scene, probably in the early 70s. Um, you know, the whole Mick Good, Rick, Gary Burton, Steve Swallow, and, you know, and, 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 and Keith and Chick came out of there. Yeah. And, and so then I'm listening and I'm listening to Ornette and I'm thinking, is it me or is it just like they're all branches from the Ornette tree? Like quite ostensibly so, if you listen to it. It's okay. In the case of Keith, admittedly, by him, yeah, um, I think covered Ornette tunes, but but I know, you know, was very much about the line and the the riff and the thing that Ornette really had right, which you could pull you in from the you know that those great heads, and then the blowing was so joyful. I was lucky enough, Vinny. I saw Ornette so many times, and then I got to work with him. So seeing him with the quartet, seeing him with Prime Time, more than once a year. Seeing Ed Blackwell on the train, seeing Ed Blackwell on the street, hello, Mr. Blackwell, have a chat. Um, 
it was it was huge. And I then I came to through my historical work at Yale and and everywhere, uh, the podcast, hearing from everyone about they always name drop Ornette. So you're really on to something there in a way that I hadn't thought of because I ended up on the classical side of Ornette playing timpani in one of his chamber pieces for him. Mm-hmm. And that to me was not his strongest suit. I felt, you know, I loved when he played alto. I loved song X with Matheny and Jack and, and Charlie, you know, but Ornette had this other side of so-called, it would, would have been, been called serious music in the day. Mm. And, you know, Ornette really was far reaching. He reached to the Grateful Dead. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? He he was able, you know, he did the soundtrack for Naked Lunch with Howard Shore. So, you know, um, Ornette should be considered ubiquitous. Amen. Now, the blowing part. See, this is what's interesting to me. When you talk about orbits on Miles Smiles, when you talk about how open the blowing goes, like, do you think there are chord changes for orbits? I think it's motific. I think it's open. I don't know. Yeah, okay. There's no there's no left hand t- Herbie. He's only doing right hand lines, right? <laughs> so all you're getting is line against line with bass and, and single note lines. And then why is that happening all of a sudden? Well, I right? And then you don't know really where the time is. Yeah. And then that, you know, so it's, that's post ornette, you know, in, in, in the flesh. Wow. That now you're really taking the ball and run that that's like, okay. You, yeah. Miles yeah. smiles used to freak me out because I'd be like, I mean, yeah. where, you know, it's not Nefertiti. It's something else. Well, you know, Her- Herbie was telling me, uh, but I, I don't want to misquote him about, you know, something about asking Miles which chords to play. Or he didn't, and, and Miles was saying, well, then don't play anything, you know. So so that, that could have been happening at that time period. And he was also telling me about how Tony wanted to play. I can't remember what he called it. I have to ask him about this again. Like the anti-music or something. There was a name for it, you know. And so... He said, I'm going to do it tonight. I'm going to stick to my guns. And so he was the instigator of them freeing up a lot of stuff. You know, in as much as he was the instigator of exposing Miles to electronic music, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I can't say whether he was the only one that did it, but, you know, just for the sake of this conversation, as we're sort of bringing that up, he was also the instigator for shaping what that band did. Yeah. You know, and, and Herbie told me that, you know, he didn't use those words. He just said that Tony said, I'm going to do this tonight, you know, I'm, and I'm sticking on my guns. So it's an interesting story when you hear that, you know, um, I, I don't want to get off track here. I was going to say something else about um, <laughs> you, you mentioned. Um, yeah. 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 But this, I mean, we could go really deep. Here. Yeah. 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 And thanks to you. Well, because you are an historian and, and a very, very astute one. So, you know, I think- I want to learn, Vin. That's what I want. I want to learn. Yeah. I want to see the connections. I like to see the flow of things. Uh, It's all very interesting to me. I'm Armenian. It's a thing. It's a history thing. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's this world of 
creativity that yeah. goes across art. Music is an art form. Yes. We are painting or mm -hmm. sculpting or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. Yeah. And I noticed that about you, even in a simple ballad. I, I just love your quiet stuff. Well, thank you. I don't know if anyone ever talks to you about that. Like, yes, they did. And, and, and I've gotten surprising results when, when we did the river, the Joni letters with Herbie, right? I remember your setup was different, right? Yeah. And it, we recorded it mostly at Avatar New York. And some of it was done again later in LA. And I used round badges and, you know, K's at that time. Yeah, I remember. And, you know, but, but other than the fact that we did, um, it was a couple tunes that we did that were pretty adventurous. Um, we actually recorded Nefertiti. That to me was, was, was like one of the pinnacles of my life, you know, like recording Nefertiti with Herbie and Wayne. Like I, I had to, I had to sort of put a blockade in my mind against any kind of thoughts of unworthiness being there and just say, well, look, I'm here. We're going to make music. And that's that, you know, it was myself and Herbie and Wayne and Dave Holland and Leon Alawecki, right? Yeah. Avatar. And that was, I, it might've been one of the bonus tracks, but. Oh, anyway, I know it. Yeah. I digress. So rather than, but, but can I just say, and, and this is still on that tangent though. Mm -hmm. um, you had a different snare drum tuning for that record. Mm -hmm. And you really had a spacious approach that kind of said to me, oh man, you know, this guy is what he says he is. I'm there for the music. This is the music. This is what you play. Yeah, pretty much. I, I mean, and, and, but, but then some people will counterpunch and say, well, why do you always use the same setup for sessions? And my answer to that is that I do that most of the time. Most. Not completely all the time, but almost mm -hmm. because for most of the things that I do, it will cover those things. But if I know what I'm in for, that's going to require something completely different than, you know, so I will adjust accordingly. And, and, um, but going back to the quiet yeah. observation, when that record came out, you know, my, my thought was, wow, I, you know, yeah. Okay. We're all in the music together. I actually underplayed mm -hmm. and you wouldn't believe the, the drummers that were suddenly emailing me, texting me saying, you sound amazing on this record, bravo. While I was playing very lightly and very ethereally. And, and so you see, I, I mean, people just hear things. I guess if you're in the, in the frame, you can't see the picture, you know, to quote a cliche, but, but I really appreciated that, um, that they were saying that. And, I, you know, I thought, okay, well, yeah, I'll take right, it. Right now, apart from brushes in your career, though, 
how many quiet situations have you played in? You've blown out your hands. You've 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 suffered playing loud gigs, but the importance of that control at the just the minimum, and the intensity that is yeah. well, I think there's two things that may have contributed to me being able to do that at a softer level. The first thing, the first time was. You know, there's there are certain uh, there's 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 a measured amount of times in our lives that we could probably count the epiphanies that happened, like big ones. <clears throat> you know, obviously Tony. You know, but but there was a time when I was living in Boston, and, and I remember walking down the street and hearing this music, and I went into this place. And it was Stan Getz, Clint Houston on bass. I haven't heard that name in a long time. And so be before I went in, I heard the music and it was like, and these guys are burning, man. I mean, it was like sizzling, right? But then when I walked in and actually saw, they were playing like this, the volume and the drummer was none other than the great Jabali Billy Hart. So when I saw that, my head spun. I, I, it was like somebody hit me over the head with an anvil again. Mm -hmm. I never saw anybody burning that hard at that low of a volume. And I thought, how the hell is he doing this? And obviously, it's a mixture of technique and attitude. It's right. attitude. And so then years later, probably when I was around 30, 31, I, you know, I went, I started studying again because you know, I was having problems with my hands, getting tendonitis and um, hang on one second. That cough drop was getting to the point where I had to chew it. <laughs> and, um, so I went to some people in LA, I went to a guy called Murray Spivak. Yeah. And then I went to another person called Richard Wilson after that. Murray was already pretty advanced in age when I went to him. I was driving to the lessons. It was all one surface learning. Same with Dick, a pad. So Murray, one of my takeaways with Murray was that the volume and the the punch that you get is not from the from the distance between the origin of the stroke and striking the drum but rather the velocity with which you strike the drum which goes which almost harkens in its extreme to the the 1 inch punch okay so and it also helped me playing overhand on the hi-hat, playing things like Tower of Power grooves where some of the strokes overlapped and this, that, without clopping the sticks together. Because if I was able to get the economy of motion right. and get the, 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 that beef of that sound, exactly. See? So then with the proper concept, you can carry it over into burning at a soft level. And 
the attitude part came in because I, I somehow was able to assimilate that. Sorry, I'm not, I, I didn't want to sort of make this into a me, me, me thing right now. But, no, but, but I'm curious. I asked the question. Yeah, it, it's like, I can only speak from my experience, right? And uh, so, so anyway, um, I would start noticing that if I would be playing tracks where the volume was not loud, but the intensity was, I would play a track and even after five minutes of recording, I would be sweating. And so the attitude turned on and what I call that the internal furnace. I just, that's what I called it for myself. It's this furnace that turns on and the heat cranks up and it comes out. It, it shows without, you know, and, and, you know, it's like even playing really loud, it's, we can, we sometimes as drummers have to maybe find ourselves making more overt physical movements. But I think there's a difference between that and doing this whole thing of, you know, you know, like really like he's kind of flailing around where it starts looking real tryhardy. And I, I just find that to be somewhat unnecessary. And some people may say, well, yeah, you might say that because you, you, you have no idea what it's like to be a showman. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to leave that one alone. Yeah. You guys talk about your showman stuff. I'm not about that. I never was. Oh, it's just always about the music and you, you got it. And, you know, in my opinion, I think there, there you know, there's like Ecclesiastes, man, there's a place for every time and place for everything, but. But isn't that see, important, Vinny, as an well, orchestrator? We, we have, well, that thought we have digressed into sensationalism. That's all I'm going to say, but go ahead. But isn't that the orchestration piece of what we do is deciding what I'm not going to play and deciding what my color palette is. And, yeah, it is. Yeah. Right? I mean, isn't that percussion and it's sort of untuned pitch, perhaps in some cases, some cases it's 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 pitched, but this idea of, of uh, Schoenberg would have called it clangfarben melody, where it's different tone colors for one phrase. It changes per note to a different register, to a different color, a different timbre. And that's kind of what we're doing in a way. We're Webern on the drums. That's and one of the most amazingly apt and beautiful descriptions I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, it is. That's, you're exactly right. And the things that we are abstracting out of our instrument through abstraction gives us freedom where this infinite orchestra, the drums are like an infinite orchestra. They're not tied to any of that, but they encompass all of it, all of it at the same time. Mm -hmm. it's, the most, it's the most liberating free thing that is the exact opposite of some limited idiophone, you know, and, and what you described is just, that was just, Please write that down. Oh, yeah. I always say it. I mean, I think of particularly playing with Derek Bailey, where I had a hybrid percussion setup. It was all about clang, farb, and melody and about quick changes of tone color. That's what got me the Cecil Taylor gig. Was Cecil heard this tape of me playing with Derek and we were doing textural changes 
every three or four notes, but really succinct idea, move on to the next thing. Contrast, keep it there for a minute, can move on. And he heard that and and, and the, the quickness of it, I realized that this is something I had imbibed from contemporary classical music. And why wouldn't you bring that to your playing? I mean, that's, I don't know how many people really brought contemporary music into their playing. I mean, I think in a way it was transfused into you by Frank. Uh, I would agree with that. I would, because, you know, I was exposed to Varese at an early age, but then Frank broadened that into, you know, Zanakis, Stockhausen, Igor, you know, all of the things that he loved. And, um, and he, he actually, and Derecki. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, please. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. So I'm so, I know, but what's so freaking weird, Vinny, is that I can hear that in your playing. Really? I can hear that in your playing. Great. I can I hear just that. love it. I love it. I, I went on a bender a couple of months ago with all of those guys and the stuff that they did. And, you know, just, I mean, oh man. It's a whole other way of thinking Atmospheres. about sound. Atmospheres. Yeah. All of the, all of it. I would just, I went nuts and it is, it is a whole other way of thinking about sound and, and it's just, it's amazing, man. And so, so, so I think it, I don't know how it gets in you and you get it out. It's almost like, like trying to use your touch to elicit beauty out of the instrument is something that's always been important to me. And once a dear friend of mine who is one of the most intelligent people I know is said that I hear beauty when you play the cymbals and when you play the drums. And, and I said, that's one of the most profound things I've ever heard because it's important to me. I don't want the sound that I produce to sound ugly or, or, you know, just maliciously aggressive, you know, any of that sort of stuff that contains, you know, malicious vitriol or, you know, and, and you know, I mean, if you want to express that through art, all those things can be expressed through art, but, you know, be careful the mindset that you insert yourself in because you could fall into that quicksand. But so, I would recommend to people listen to the track Lovebirds, the opening track on Doug Lund's album, and you will hear Vinny play with joy. And you'll hear Vinny play with a kind of floating compositional rhythmic overlay in a way that I can only say is the most musical drumming. So you don't you can hear Vinny blow out his brains or whatever on 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 a 30 second notes, but it's not just that. It's the scope. And that's something that I got from Stockhausen too, which I guess you can get from jazz as well. The scope, Vin, from zero to eleven. Yeah. I, I, thank you. And, and, and I'm, I don't deserve your, your accolades, but I have to thank you for them. But you know what, if somebody were to say to me, what, what do you, what do you think the future of drumming should be? And I would say the future of drumming should be inclusive in all music, not for its own sake, but that it should be what you're talking about, what you're talking about right now. Like, what you just explained and what we're speaking of, how those things come out in us. And, and 
those kind of textural sort of differences. And um, I think that, I think that we really need to get away from uh, just, just excessive sensationalism because we, we're going to, we're going to lose the reason why we were here and it'll morph into something that, you know, may, may lose the plot. And, I, you know, I, I got to be careful what I say here because knives will come out, but so can I hit you? Can I hit you with a memory? Yeah. I want to hit you with a very important memory and I want to <laughs> share it with everybody. In Halloween of 1978, I went to the Palladium in New York and Frank Zappa had a new drummer. <laughs> and it was this really scraggly looking kid playing like he was in a cockpit with his arms up in the air and a weird bongo castanet assemblage nearby and blowing his brains out over Frank's opening solo and sat there like this. And then eventually tears. I had never, we had, we were not prepared for you. And I want you to know that. And I want everybody to know that, that I was there when you came out and it was night three because he kept calling us New York number three. And it was you and then Shankar and you going fucking ballistic. You, that's what, I saw that, that. Shankar was, was there. there. Yes. That's right. I remember now. Remember that? He did a string of shows with us. And yes. just when I thought I was comfortable in the zone of Frank in an odd times, he showed up and stretched my <laughs> imagination like silly putty. Yeah, because your odd meter thing was really developed. And then this Indian guy comes up and you went to tete-a-tete -tete with him, toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I was blown, man. It really stretched me. He really stretched me because they they think differently about it. And even though they think differently about it, it's interesting to note that if we both understand that language, even from different viewpoints, we can end up in the same place. It's just a different way of thinking of it. Seven and yeah. a half instead of, you know what I mean? And then you played with Zakir. What's that? And then you played with Zakir. Right. He, which was another one. And that guy, Oh, forget it. So we, we did a tour with Herbie and um, it was another mind expanding <laughs> thing. So yeah, it's, he gave me a crash course in, in, in the thinking aspect of, 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 of that music of sweet you know, guy. Yeah. He's very deep. Um, there was something I wanted to ask you and I can't remember now. And we could probably go on forever about this. Um, oh, anyway, no matter. So, <laughs> This is the way we do it. This is actually the way we do it. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's it's so great, Greg. Yeah. Is, um, every time I speak to you, it's like uh, it's 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 mind expanding and it's enlightening. And I and I come away from it like almost feeling like not almost, but feeling like my values have been renewed. And I think that I I, I can hope that people listening to this will somehow integrate this and rethink things and open themselves up to other things. And um, that's all we can hope aspects that will, ca will cause us to reframe how we see and hear things.
Yeah, I mean, I want all the all the details. I want all the naughty bits. I I, I mean, I I just to be able to hear you with Jeff Beck and Herbie in the same year, you know, just to hear the highest level of that brought me so much joy, brings me so much joy. Um, just you really are someone who's contributing a lot of joy to the world through your work. Thank you. And I put on secrets yesterday, man, just to sort of prepare for this, because that was my second blowout. It was 78, 88 or 89, that record. And I'm like 10 years of, of Vinny. He sounded like this 10 years ago. And it was funny because, you know, to some degree, your setup was so weird, but you were still doing the same kind of stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. because Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that... um Hang on a second, I went down the wrong pipe. <laughs> and and while you're you're coughing, I just want to add, and then you know, tell me a little bit about those blowouts with Frank because he put out a whole shut up and play selection on, on all those moments. And and those he were did. he did, but that was just um a part of just our free improvisation you know i know but but what they were were sometimes psychic yeah i think that 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 getting into this um some people could could actually try to use this term as a is it a polemic is that the right word whereby it's like well reckless abandon like like there's something wrong with it um, but really, I think it, it, it cultivated the idea of communicating beyond the speed of thought with someone, you know, and, and, and that then, you know, parlayed into playing with people like Herbie, where, you know, it, 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 these things happen and you just, it's even beyond having your radar up. It's like a mind meld where you could almost predict what's going to happen before it happens. And there, I have no rational explanation for that, which tells me a lot about the state of, of life and our experiential reality. Like as if it has to be, you know, validated by some data set and some consensus. Yeah. You're you know, an individualist. Yeah. Yeah. But, 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 but besides the individual versus the collective, I mean, like, like as if it has to be quantified by some experiment and then therefore verified and, and, you know, revealed as a, as a, as, as data, it's like, you have to live this, you have to experience it. Like if I said to you, I had a paranormal experience and I can't prove it to you, then it's all hearsay, but I know what I had and whether or not you're going to try to prove to me that I'm deluded is like, okay, you could say whatever you want, but as long as I'm not going to force my viewpoint on you or have you force yours on me, we can agree to disagree. I, I, you know, I feel what I saw. And by the same token, you know, if those moments are happening and I'm talking about, and I'm describing it in unscientific, you know, vernacular, like, like, look, you, you gotta, you just have to learn how to cultivate it and, and be that then you can take it or leave it. That's the best I can do. But That's Vinny, it's I so natural. Well, you're, you're so natural. You're, you sit down and it just comes through you. I've never seen you play anything that wasn't appropriate musically. Well, thank That's, you. I mean, I, that's an I amazing think, thing. I think that, 
well, thank you, Greg. I think that when you just let go, that can can be what happens. But, but, but you know, how do you explain someone teaching, you know, someone how to be a, 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 a Zen archer blindfolded and hit targets? Where's the scientific data set for that? You know what I mean? Hundred percent. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to say. Hundred like, percent. That's that's where you go. go. You, you have go beyond. To, yes. And if you got to let go of trying to validate these events and phenomena and experiences with data sets and trying to prove it like you would prove that, I don't know, that, I mean, like you would prove any kind of Newtonian physics. You got to go past that because now, and now it's sort of like, you know, uh, people argue, well, this, this table is really not solid matter. It's, you know, and, and yada, yada, yada. But there's, we live with a certain element of trust without anal analysis paralysis. That's why we're able to cross the street and well, drive. Well, it's called critical car. thinking. Critical thinking is something we should all possess. Yeah. I would but, think. But, but Vinny, but we don't yeah. have that much time. I know, I know you've got a lot going on. Let me ask you this. How the hell did you end up with Bill Bruford on Breakfast with Vinny? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question. But, but I sought him... I sought him out through various channels and took my chances and somehow got through to him because, you know, I don't have access to him. Um, and then, you know, he, I knew someone that knew someone that knew him, you know, and I just said, well, you know, if, if you talk to him, could you, could you then, uh, it was a friend of mine in London who said he would reach out to his friend and that his friend would, would reach out to Bill. And I said, you know, I don't know if he'd be interested, but just ask him. And and uh, and the next thing, you know, I, I said, here's my email. And next thing you know, I get an email from Bill. And I thought, oh, wow, this is great. Because I never met Bill. Um, I, I, don't, like, I don't know him in, in person, personally. But I've always admired him because, you know, I, I mean, I remember seeing him. The original yes, wow. you know. King Crimson. I mean, the the early. I mean, I've seen Bill, and I've seen iterations of what he's done. His own band, um, and and how's he? He's he's sort of just branched out and done these things, Earthworks, and and so I've always admired Bill, and and you know he's he's like a, a he's a creative intellectual man, you know, a drummer leader man, huh? Drummer leader, drummer yeah, composer yeah, leader. exactly, exactly. That's the so, line. So that's how that happened, and um, I just it was a joy talking to him. Really, really, truly. So that's so cool. And, yeah. And, uh, and breakfast with Vinny's on all different platforms. People yeah. should check it out. It's yeah, it's really fun, and it's it's usually a lot uh, more succinct than some of the stuff we get into here. But you know, <laughs> where else are you going to get this? You're yeah, exactly. Get this. Yeah. There you Vinny go. Vinny talking about Zach here. Vinny talking about Bruford. And, you know, Vin, bef before it, it gets too too late, I wanted you to tell a story that you told me when we did your oral history for Yale that your high school had an assembly where the Don Ellis band played. Yeah, it it was in my junior high auditorium. Junior high. <laughs> and so that's... So you were what, 12? Maybe at that time I was a lot of things happened to me like around age 14 when I started taking lessons. Yeah. But I, it was like around that time, sixth, seventh grade, like around 13, 14. Yeah. 
somewhere in there. And, um, <laughs> and you know, I'm seeing this and it was like, what? You know, but, but we had these people coming through our town. Pittsburgh we, area, right? Yeah, this was rural Pennsylvania, like 40 miles outside of Pittsburgh. You know, I remember uh, meeting Steve Smith in a little area, just like two miles from where I grew up. You know, another little rural area where he was playing with a big band called the Lynn Biviano Band, and that's how I met Steve. And um, and you know, so so at that time, our little school had all these programs, and and uh, the band was fostered, and there were these people that really cared about music, and if they saw talent, they would, you know, one of the guys that was was in the music program said. I'm going to take you to Carnegie Mellon and you're going to study with this guy and I'm going to nurture you, you know, and um, it, all that kind of stuff was happening. And I was going to these clinics. I remember them taking me to this clinic camp once with Stan Kenton. And I remember the first time that I ever saw someone splashing the hi-hat was taught to me. And I saw him do it was John Von Allen. He would splash the hi-hat, right? He was the, they called him the Baron. The Baron. That's right. Yeah. Then I met Peter, and Peter was playing in Kenton's band, and he had this enormous ride cymbal, and they were playing these tempos, ding, 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 that's and how that's we used true. to hang out. That's you know, amazing. and do those things. And yeah, you know, and Kenwood was, I remember on the same floor as me in the dormitory at Berkeley and, you know, Philippe Sace and all these people, you know, JR, Mike Stern was there. Matheny was teach, still teaching there when I was a freshman at Berkeley. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Steve Swallow, Gary Burton. I mean, there was a lot going on, but, but um, <clears throat> I want to tell you another thing quickly yeah. before we stop. You and I were talking about, oh, we talk about Milford Graves. We talk about Sonny Murray. So yeah, we do. Andrew Sorrell. Yes. I talked to Frank about Sonny Murray. I mean, wait a minute. Let me go back to Frank. I talked to Herbie about Sonny Murray. Oh, wow. And I said, had you ever really like listened to, and what do you think of the avant-garde approach and, and how do you hear that? So he told me a story. He said that he went up to Sonny once and said, you know, because he heard him play and he's, he's, he thought, wow, I, okay. So he said, what do you think of when you play? What makes you play like that? And the answer that he, he told Herbie and Herbie said to me was trains. Uh -huh. I listened to trains. And then Herbie told me that Sonny went and told him that he could recognize every different train engine that there was he could tell you which where it was going where it was coming from and and all of these things that he based that were heavily included in that informed his playing concept trains so i had to tell you that story because i don't think i ever told you that before thank you that's really beautiful because sonny murray is an enigma yeah and and that's actually Many listeners may know this, but that's actually how I got the Cecil Taylor record is it was supposed to be Sonny Murray and he didn't show up. <laughs> so there you go. What a great code of tits for this. 
Sonny was watching trains or doing something else, but was not available yeah. that day. And and uh, I I ran out of my office job to go play that session in uh, at RCA Studios. Wow, that's that's amazing. You know, check your messages. Wow. Remember, check your your voice your uh, machine. Yeah, no check kidding. your machine moment. Yes, that's happened to me, man. I can yeah. go on with that too. Yeah, but um, so you know what? Let's well, let's say about this, Greg. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this, and let's say to be continued. How about that? That's always always welcome, Vin, and uh, I'm sure it will be continued, either in 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 front of a Zoom or maybe walking around drinking coffee. Amen. that's that's a fun way to talk to you so i'll take it you've shared so much and and thank you so much for your music and thank you so much for your positive inspiration and you know um another line from your oral history that that was a very quick one sentence answer was i said to you how important was buddy and you said buddy showed us what was possible and i'd like to say vinnie kaliuta shows us what is possible no. Thank you, Greg. All right. So you're the best, man. We love you. And everybody, please like, subscribe, hit us on Patreon. This is this is where it's happening. This is where we're talking about moving things along in music. And Vinny, I love you. You're the best. Back at you, buddy. Okay. Ciao.